or lasso. If this eight-week retreat were a baseball game in which each of us had just hit a very, very long fly ball, then we've already run to first base and come to second base, and now we're rounding second base and coming to third. And maybe we can get a uh, in-the-stadium home run, right? But we've rounded, we've come beyond the halfway point now, so we're coming to home, coming to home base. And it's not premature, just now and then, to anticipate how the practices we're engaging in here may be really fully implemented when we get back to wherever we're going. It's obvious that for those of us who are going back to active way of life, as, as I will be, so my life is going to be less leisurely when I leave here than it is now, um, it's easy to think, oh, boy, I've only got three and a half more weeks for shamato. I wonder how I, wonder how I can ma manage when I have to have many responsibilities and so forth. That's one way of looking at it. And another way of looking at it is, in terms of the four immeasurables, this mind center is, gives so limit, limited opportunity. I have to draw so much on imagination to really fully develop these four immeasurables. Whereas when I go back wherever I'm going, I'm going to be meeting lots of sentient beings and lots of different situations. And there'll be real live ones, not my little Rolodex <laughs> that I'm pulling out when I'm doing the loving-kindness practice and so forth. And so thinking that really there can be a big upside, a real advantage for the four immeasurables. And among the four, none of them are more applicable than the topic for this afternoon, and that is empathetic joy. It just occurred to me something, it's kind of obvious, but it was never quite so clear as to me this afternoon, that when, whether by way of the media or our own immediate personal experience, we encounter someone in distress, or someone really manifesting strong mental afflictions, it really catches the attention. It should, and it does. You know, So the, the latest mining accident, the, la the latest hurricane, and so forth, that's what the media really is focusing on, and, and we see it, and it catches the attention. And if we're practicing, then it's quite, quite spontaneously. We may feel sorrow for those who are afflicted. We may move beyond the sorrow to compassion. But we don't really... It catches the attention already. Whereas whether it's the media, or whether... And the media is, in a way, expression of what goes on in everyday life. That is, what catches their attention it is, in many cases, what catches our attention, just as ordinary human beings. And that is when something really nice happens, or something rather ordinary, but which is really good, virtuous, kind, it doesn't tend to catch the attention so much. So as we all know, there's a tremendous amount of really wonderful things taking place in the world. Locally, loving mothers, loving parents, loving siblings, and so forth. People doing good work for their community, offering their services in the various ways, or also when they're getting uh, paid to do their work, doing really good work with... I mean, this happens all over the place, right? In every country. that It never shows up in the news. It just never shows up in the news, right? If, if a mother kills her children, that'll show up in the news. But a mother being a, being a very loving mother, oh, that just never shows up. And yet the proportion is, what, 10,000 to 1? And so, without belaboring that point, that the media is imbalanced there, we don't need to be imbalanced. But it does take a little bit of conscientious effort, maybe an intention, that when, whether it's here, and of course we're not entirely cloistered from the world here, we have our own internal community, we engage somewhat with the surrounding countryside and people, 
but really making an agenda, that is, when we step out, to have the antenna up to those just anything good, or let alone good, just joy. I mean, I can't remember when I've met a happier dog than the one who's, a, who's adopted us here. Have you ever met a happier dog? This dog seems to have a tail that's just ready to go, ooh, with just a small glance. And then it suddenly becomes your best friend. She becomes your best friend, like, Car Carissa, hi, Carissa, this is me. Hi, hi, wag, 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 wag. And you want to play? You want to play? Or I saw her just this morning when I went for my walk. There were, you know, the, the, the local gang. And, you know, right, you know, just around the corner. And she, she w walked over to them and she was dancing. She was dancing. She was almost, she could hardly even come down to touch the earth. She was just kind of l prancing over and then j just jumped on one and everybody knew she was playing. So the other ones all played with her. Wow, oh, that's one happy dog. <laughs> you know, if you have to be a dog, she lucked out. And so a little thing like that, dogs playing. And you can see they were really, they were really just playing and having a good time. Well, why not? That's time for empathetic joy. You know, you go to India, you don't see many so happy dogs. Here, lots of happy dogs. Especially that one, that's the happiest boy. That, she's queen of the day. <laughs> so whether it's a dog being happy, or there's one, one fellow a little bit younger than I, maybe he's 50, and he drives one of those little motor scooters with a carriage. And I see him pretty frequently. And now every single time, I just see his, he has this wizened, really friendly face. And now every time he comes by, I just make eye contact. I get this big grin from him, and I just naturally want to smile back. And we're going like this, you know, he'll take both of his hands off the handlebars. <laughs> 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 you know. So now I'm just doing it with one hand. <laughs> but it's such friendliness. I mean, it's just spontaneous. But I see it from him. Of course, it brings it out of me. What can you do? You, you can't kind of... Uh, it would be t so much muscle tension to do that. You know, it's really painful. So, little thing like that. But, you know, it's warmth. It's genuine uh, human contact. It's just really, it's friendliness. And it's just spontaneous. And that's just so nice. So, little things like that. That's not going to hit the um, Phuket bulletin. There's a really friendly guy out there riding a moped with, <laughs> keep your eyes out for him. He, you know, he's public friend number one that won't show up not in the local newspaper, anywhere else, but to be attending to them. And psychologists have found this. I think it's really a nice, nice insight from modern psychology. And that is when, when they've done surveys of people who just generally would characterize their lives as being quite happy. And there are people like that, quite a number of them. Um, the common characteristic among them, very, very commonly, is they find many, many things to, be, to take delight in. They're not waiting to win a lottery or waiting for some big, fantastic thing to happen. They're just taking delight, finding many small things to take delight in. And they just keep the engine warm, keep the engine running. You know, a little thing like that, seeing this guy. But every time I see him now, I see him coming from afar, and I'm just ready to smile. You know, it, nothing can try, but I'm just, because I know he's going to be smiling at me. I so said, what can I do? I'm just, I'm getting my hand ready, and, you know, and this big smile comes over his face, like, like his long lost brother or something, you know? And so, finding many opportunities. Well, as, I've, as I listen to you week by week coming in for your meet, uh, weekly uh, you know, meetings, or some of you say the week went really well, some will say really difficult. Everybody says up and down, up and down. <laughs> you know? And so if you're waiting for the end of the session to see whether you can be happy or not, happy with your practice, oh, that was a good session. The pr next one probably won't be, but the last one was good. Of course, it's, it's over. <laughs> <laughs> 
and the next one will probably suck given my past track record, but the last one was nice. The memory is fading, but oh, bye-bye, nice session, you know. Rather than going that route, you know, within the session, within the session, every time that you see, let's just do it right now for th four seconds, Man, that was good. Do you want to do it again? But let's have four sessions. I'm just really good. Put you four seconds. Ready? Ready to have a really good session? I mean, one you can write home about. You ready? Let's go. Four seconds. Man, that was good. <laughs> Wasn't that great? I mean, man, did you even have one wandering thought where you abducted even once? Four seconds, man, that's the stuff that shamatha is made of, you know? So within the session, finding many opportunities, you don't need to bring out the brass band, you don't need to give a whole commentary. Man, are you good, you are just so good, you are good, good, good. <laughs> you don't need to overdo it, but quietly taking satisfaction. And bear in mind... When you're distracted, you're not aware of it anyway, so why, you know, what's to be unhappy about? <laughs> and by the time you're back home, by the time you recollected it, what you could be unhappy about has already passed, so why bother to be unhappy about it? Because you're home again, right? So really, you never have any excuse for being unhappy in your meditation, because when you really suck, you're unaware of it anyway. <laughs> and by the time you're back, <laughs> you're back, so why not just be happy that you're back, rather than being grumpy that you used to be not back? <laughs> so find many opportunities just to take, in a single session, a single session, ready for one, just one more, because I, I like it so much. Four seconds, you ready for a really incredibly good session? Even awareness of awareness was good. Wow. Okay? So finding many opportunities like that. Take the light, lighten up, you know, lighten up. And in a single session, find many opportunities to say, huh, without commentary, just take the light, huh, this is it. This is called achieving shamatha. This is how Milarepa did it. This is how all the great yogis of the past have done it, by having four-second intervals and a whole bunch of them. So whether it's inside, whether it's outside, that's really the key really the key to empathetic joy. So this afternoon, what I'd like to do is start from the outside. Empathetic joy really is emphasis on the outside. I'm adding the inside to make sure there's parity there and to overcome the old inclination that many people have of, you know, putting oneself down. But today we'll really go out. And what I'd like to do is that we start Theravada and we end Mahayana. And we start classic Theravada, rich, noble, incredible tradition of attending, first of all, as we attend outwards, letting our attention rove. So it's this kind of balance of not just having a, a wandering mind, but not also being too regimented, you know, too tight, but just roving out, almost like a fishing expedition, to see what fish will bite. To see as you attend outwards to, to people you know personally, you know by way of the media, people who really bring kind of a lightness, a joy to their life, to people who have experienced success, you know, good fortune comes their way. There are many such people, some of them you know personally. Linger on that, bring them to mind, take delight in their joy, share their joy with them. So there's one whole phase. So taking light in the joys, the successes, the good fortune of others, their happiness, 
And then on the one hand, and then going on to attending to those who are actively cultivating the causes of happiness by way of an ethical way of life, by cultivating samadhi, mental balance, cultivating insight. So attending to those, taking delight in those who are really manifesting the virtue in the world, taking delight in that. And so this is really cultivating an emotion. And to learn that we really can cultivate emotion, that they don't just happen to us. We can go out, seek them, cultivate them, and then like a farmer, reap the harvest. And it has to do with where, what we're attending and how we're attending. Because we can also attend to the same people and look at them with jealousy or envy. Right? Can't happen, but that's kind of counterproductive. And so, attending to the joys, successes, good fortunes of others, their happiness, attending to others and their virtues, their cultivation of the actual causes of happiness for themselves and others. And that is really cultivating an emotion, a sense of satisfaction, of contentment, rejoicing, delight, appreciation, all of the above. And then there's the Mahayana. And as you may recall, the Mahayana, the Mahayana liturgy runs... May we, let's just put it in vernacular, may we all, all sentient beings, may we all never be parted from happiness and the causes of happiness. And I've already run through how this is not some sappy thing like may we, may, may we all be lucky every single day, because that's not going to happen. It didn't even happen to the Buddha. He wasn't lucky every single day. When somebody tried to kill him, that wasn't a lucky day. When he had stomach problems, that wasn't a lucky day. When somebody wiped, when whole, uh, in a neighboring kingdom wiped out his family, that was not a lucky day. So even Buddhas don't have lucky days all the time. Uh, but who needs luck when you're a Buddha? And so, no one we speak of, may you never be parted from happiness and the causes of happiness, clearly, as soon as we bring even a little a teaspoon of wisdom to that, it, we know what we're talking about. It's genuine happiness. And as much hedonic well-being as, you, as is useful, sure, sure, welcome, come on in. But genuine happiness is something we can really cultivate. Hedonic happiness more happens to us. And so may sentient beings never be parted from genuine happiness and the causes of genuine happiness. And it always brings me back to the same point. As the, as the old cliche goes, all roads, roads lead to Rome. All lines of inquiry, to my mind, lead to the importance, the centrality of finding a path. Finding a path. A path has direction. It goes from here to there. Most paths do. Many paths do. The paths I'm referring to does. <laughs> Some are circular and triangular and so forth and so on. But the kind of, when we speak of marga, of course, this has direction. It goes from here to there. It goes from misery to joy. It goes from samsara to nirvana. It goes from samsara to transcending the very duality of samsara and nirvana. But a path. And so if, if we, if sentient beings, are to find genuine happiness and the causes of happiness and never be parted, that means we need to find more than simply ha genuine happiness and the causes of genuine happiness. I mean, there have to, have to be thousands of self-help books out there that will tell you how to be more patient, how to manage your anger, how to... all kinds of good things. And I'm sure a lot of them are very helpful, otherwise, you know, they wouldn't sell to anybody. A little bit of virtue here, a little bit of virtue there. Buddhism has many, many techniques. Bit of virtue here, deal with that, deal with that. So does Christianity, so does humanism. There's lots of virtue in the world. It's not contingent upon any particular worldview. 
I'm sure the most ardent, hardcore, even militant, atheist materialists and so forth, of course they can engage in virtue. Why would they not? They can engage in virtue, of course, of course. And virtue is virtue, whoever does it. But path? Path? And path, as we know, is something where there's an ongoing evolution. It's a transition, it's a growth, it's a maturation. And it has a direction to it, builds, it grows. There's a continuity. It's not just a little bit of up and a little bit of down, good day, bad day, virtue, then non, not, then non, not virtue. A path entails really a, a true evolution. Not simply adapting to changing environments, but an evolution from within that one is truly moving away from suffering and the causes of suffering and moving towards liberation and the causes of liberation. It comes back to the path. So may all sentient beings, may we all never be parted from genuine happiness and the causes of happiness. Why could it not be? Why couldn't we all never be parted from genuine happiness and its causes? Why couldn't we? There's the question. It starts with a question. And then may I make it so. May I be the one. No, no. May it happen. May it, may it occur. May we never be parted. Think, being idealistic. May we never be parted from genuine happiness. And that carries through times of adversity, times of sadness, times of all the ups and downs. The flow, the continuum of genuine happiness continues as does the transformation of adversity into causes of genuine happiness, the great alchemical revolution of Dharma to transform that all that takes place into Dharma. That is really never being parted from genuine happiness and its causes. Even if we're miserable, even if sadness arises, we're still transmuting that, transforming that into a deeper renunciation, into deeper compassion, into deeper disillusionment with samsara, into a stronger resolution to truly emerge from our mental afflictions and so on. Even that is transmuted. So we're never parted from genuine happiness, genuine well-being, and the causes of genuine well-being. May it be so. So there's the aspiration. And then the third one, and may I make it so, may I be the one who enables us, us all to never be parted from genuine happiness and the causes of genuine happiness. May, may I make it so. So when we consider, and I would invite everyone here individually on our own, uniquely from our own perspective, to consider this question, what's the greatest you can imagine offering to the world around you? What's the greatest good you can imagine? It's not, a, it's, it's not one of those trick questions like, Okay, now did you get the right answer? Did you get the right answer? Oh, you didn't. Oh, you got the good. Okay, here's the right. He got the right answer. Not that. Not that. Of course, there's a Buddhist answer. But what's your answer? Because your answer will be real for you. What's the greatest good you could offer? And not within the next ten minutes or the next one year or five years. What's the greatest good you could offer? What's the greatest good you would love to offer? Greatest benefit. Greatest benefit. And I'll tell you the Buddhist answer. There are many goods that many, many people can bring to the world, and many do. Helping people overcome blatant suffering and finding hedonic happiness. That's in incredibly valuable. If you're hungry, people want food. If people don't have an education, they need an education. And so forth. Enormously important. 
and, there are many, and it's in the public eye. There's a lot of public awareness. Billions of dollars are going there, and they should. And maybe that's the framework in which your own life will be dedicated to medicine, to education, to poverty, and so forth and so on. There's a lot of attention. Well, there needs to be a lot of attention. It's massive. It's large. And solutions, remedies, healing, it really is available. There's that whole bandwidth. There's helping other people cultivate virtue. And many people do that. Really, many people do. It's a much smaller number of people who really, their life's mission, what their lives are all about, is helping other people, guiding, inspiring, encouraging other people to cultivate the actual causes of happiness. And not just reap the benefits, but actually cultivate the inner causes. Right? And that's a noble profession. It happens to all religions at their best. It happens many, many times outside of religion. Parents instilling really good virtues, ideals, ethical principles in their own children. That happens a lot. Happens a lot. And whether they're religious or not, it happens a lot. Secular and religious. That's a wonderful thing. But who's capable? And how many people are there who are guiding others so they can find a path that is irreversible? They don't just dip into, in, dip into virtue, do a bit of meditation, do a bit of this, do a bit of do that, do a little retreat here, a little retreat there, whatever. But are able to skillfully and effectively guide others to finding a way out of samsara. That's what it really boils down to. It can actually lead others out of samsara to a complete and irreversible healing of delusion, craving, and hostility. Beyond that, Mahayana path can actually skillfully, effectively lead people to the Mahayana path where you slip into a current, a bodhisattva current that takes you all the way to perfect enlightenment. Where are the guides? I I think of the Old West, the Old West, the mid-19th century. Those were real pioneers back then, 1850. That was real, before the Civil War, they were real pioneers, right? even after the Civil War, still pioneers. But you can imagine, if you're one of those early pioneers, 1830s, 1840s, wanting to get out to Oregon or California, can you imagine how immensely important finding a guide would be? Because that's one heck of a lot of wilderness. Between the Mississippi River and California, Oregon, and so forth, that's a lot of unknown territory, a lot of dangers. You'd want to have a good... Number one, you probably won't want to go solo. You'll probably want to have a group, a sangha, a sangha with you, right? Some support, some real group energy. And when one gets ill, you don't just die of starvation out there on the Great Plains. You have some companions to take, to take care of you, and then you get well, and they get ill, and you take care of them, and so forth. So you've got a community, a sangha in motion, heading from the Mississippi River out to the Pacific Coast, number one. But having a sangha is not quite enough. Blind leading the blind doesn't tend to work too well. And so you can imagine, if, if that caravan, that traveling sangha, can find a guide who's been there, has come back, not only solo, which a lot of frontiersmen did, but actually knows how to lead a caravan, how to lead a wagon train, that would be really quite a find. Then people would want to rally around that person. Take us, let us be your next group. Carry us to the far shore. 
So that would be quite an offering. That's a nice parable, I think. But this is the far shore of suffering. This is the far shore of realizing your own Buddha nature. And to, get to, to, get to guide others so they actually find that path and more and more they become their own refuges. Because you, refuges. Because you can imagine if you were in that caravan and you've been one of those who faced all the challenges of getting from the Mississippi River to the Pacific Coast, by the time you're on the Pacific Coast, you could almost go back to Mississippi River and say, howdy folks, I'm a guide. I did it. I, I've done it. I know where to go. I know the kind of things you're going to encounter. Uh, if you'd like me to help you, I'm ready. And if you don't, I'm just going to head back to the Pacific by myself. So what would you love to offer to others? It comes back to that theme. May we all never be parted from genuine happiness and the causes of genuine happiness. May I make it so. And if you wish, you may finish that liturgy because I don't want to deprive you of it. May my, may my own spiritual mentors, not just one, Lama, may my own spiritual mentors, my Yidam, the Buddhas, May they all bless me that I may be so enabled to effectively help others so they're never separated from genuine happiness as God. If you can think of something greater you can offer to the world than that, let me know. Because my imagination kind of runs dry at that point. I think, wow. I'm an incredibly faint facsimile of that, but at least I'm aspiring for that. That really strikes me as quite noble and immensely satisfying. So consider for yourselves what's the best you could offer. And let's practice empathetic joy. those long prefatory comments. Now as we venture into the meditation itself, few words are needed. Let's begin as usual settling the body, speech, and mind in their natural states.
And this, let us shift from the quiescent to the more active mode of awareness. Allow your attention to rove. And alight upon individuals, it could be groups, of people who, who exude a sense of well-being, of good cheer. They light up the room. Or you could focus on those who have recently experienced some good fortune, some success, are really finding happiness. Attend closely. Let their happiness and good fortune be real for you. And you may, if you wish, with each out-breath, just breathe out this light of gladness, appreciation, taking a simple pleasure in others' joys and successes and good fortune.
then shift to another dimension and attend to the virtues people bring to the world, from the simplest act of kindness to the deepest samadhi. Let your attention rove and breathe out the light of gladness and rejoicing.
then, if you will, arouse the aspirations that may we that we may we all may never be separated from genuine happiness and its causes. And breathe out this aspiration to all those around you. Expand your awareness to embrace all beings, 
each one already striving to find happiness. Release all appearances and all aspirations, and for just a short time, rest in the luminous nature of your own awareness. Lasso, just one piece, one piece of mail today, but they are practice questions, which are very welcome. This has to do with shamatha. According to the attention revolution, one experiences the flow of involuntary thoughts like a cascading waterfall all the way from stage one through three. And of course, mm, the, how do you say, the source of this is not the attention revolution. It's the teachings of Lama Mipam Rinpoche. I mean, of course, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not criticizing anything, but I want you to know that it's not, hey, Alan had this idea that, I don't know about Alan's idea, but this cascading waterfall, I, he's spending too much time under the shower. You know? <laughs> it's not my idea. It's Lama one of the great, really formidable, extraordinary Nyingma Lamas of the 19th century. And he wrote about the, the nine stages. And now here's the point. Very, I haven't even read the rest of the question. But when he gives these lovely metaphors that I give as bullet items for each of the nine stages, the cascading waterfall and all the way through to Mount Meru, king of mountains at the very end when he achieved well, the, the final stage, um, these are all specifically pertaining to the practice of settling the mind in its natural state. They're not good analogies for mindfulness of breathing. They are exactly good analogies for the practice of settling the mind in its natural state. So before reading any further, 
uh, here's the obvious reason why. If you're practicing mindfulness of breathing, from the very beginning, when involuntary thoughts arise, what do you do with them? You release them instantly. You don't even have a conversation with them. You don't even ask them whether they're nice or ugly, friendly or what have you. Just out. Out. Period. Right? And so naturally, when you have that just homogenous, kind of relentless response to every involuntary thought that comes up, because you're seeking to maintain, an, a, to the best of your ability, an ongoing, uninterrupted flow of non-conceptual awareness of the sensations of the breath, which will eventually turn into a non-conceptual awareness of the, of the acquired sign, then any thought that comes up is just an interruption, period. Right? So that being the case, then you can easily imagine as you progress from stage one to two, now you've got continuity. You can maintain continuity, focusing on the sensations of the breath for up to a minute or so. And then stage three, longer than that, more brief interruptions. Well, you can imagine those involuntary thoughts just have to decrease because you're not giving them an inch. You're not, you're not deliberately letting any come in. So they're gonna, that cascading waterfall is going to taper off pretty quickly. In utter contrast to that, if you're practice, set, set, practicing settling the mind in its natural state, and the involuntary thoughts come up, what do you do then? Yeah, you let them be. Just think beetles and, and just let them be, let them be, let them be, let them be. And if you're, if you're just letting them be all the way through, then you're not putting the brakes on. You're not closing the door. You're not even frowning at them. You're just letting them be, which means they're going to slow down in their own sweet fashion, but not quickly. But then, where's the progress? If stages one, two, three, they're cascading waterfall, cascading waterfall, cascading waterfall. I say, this sounds like a lot of the same. So what's happening? Where's, where's the benefit? Where's there any progress? What's that? <laughs> You're getting better at letting them be. I think I can pretty, pretty well let them, let them be with no training at all. Just, do you have any hashish? I mean, that, that kind of helps. Let them be. <laughs> I don't need to meditate for that. <laughs> no, I think we're all good at daydreaming. No, but you're right. But you didn't just quite. Def you gave me gave me a little handle to have some fun. Um, where's the progress in terms of actual practice of shamatha and the three qualities we're cultivating? Where's the where's the sign that you're getting any benefit out of this practice at all? If you're getting cascading waterfall through all three of the first out of nine stages, that's a lot of time. Where's the benefit? Where, where's the real progress? You are getting better because, I mean, take your, your comment a bit more seriously. Sure, actually, the ordinary untrained mind is repressing thoughts all over the place. I don't like that one. I want that one. Oh, I don't like that one. Back up. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's not letting them be. It's quite true what you said. But there's a bit more going on in the first three stages of shamatha. What's that? Yeah, but just, but I'm going to fish here. Now there is, a, there is a right answer. The three qualities I don't need to tell you. It's relaxation, stability, vividness. So even though, but so if, cascade, if the thoughts continue to be like cascading waterfall, how can you be more and more relaxed? Patricia? Yeah, you're not grasping onto them as much. You're grasping less and less and less. So even though the cascading waterfall is continuing, you're not being... Jerked all, jerked all over the place by them as much. You're relaxing, you're releasing, 
so that you're not getting upset by them, right? So that's one thing. So they're happening. It's not my, it's not, frankly, it's not my problem. So it's going to be like watching, a, you know, one of those rowdy English football games, you know, where the, where the people in the, in the, what do you call it, the, you know, the, 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 the any people watching the game, uh, you know, they start stabbing, have a, 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 you know, fighting. You know, one of those. I think the English are kind of into that, right? So I hear. Well, if you're watching it on television and you see people throwing stuff at each other and getting really pissed off and so forth, you know, well, you're watching it on television. If that's what you want to do, go for it. Not my problem. I don't care who wins. <laughs> Liverpool versus somebody else. <laughs> Whatever. I just couldn't find anything more interesting to watch. <laughs> you know. So you'll watch that, you know, the big ah Liverpool is winning, Liverpool's losing, you know, but you can care less. It's their problem. They're on television anyway. So you just watch it, but it's not your problem. So you watch it with that kind of okay, okay there was nothing better on, so let's watch these guys getting really pissed off because from they're from di- different cities and one side's winning and one side's losing. Okay. So you're calm, even though the riot's still taking place. So you can definitely be more relaxed, even than when the cascading waterfall is taking place. Anything else? How can you find any stability when the cascading waterfall is continuing? You're not carried away by thoughts as much. Less grasping. Less grasping. It comes down to the same thing. Because there's less grasping, you're more relaxed. Because there's less grasping, you're not carried away. Because there's less grasping, you are like the gracious host attending to the unruly guests. And the unruly guests are the cascading waterfall of thoughts, memories, and so forth and so on. So, and moreover, you could actually be getting a bit more clarity as well. That's not a big emphasis on the first three stages. But that's, what's, that's the big difference, is there's very little relaxation. You all know what it's like to be just jerked around by one thought after another. It's not peaceful. It's not loose. It's not relaxing. And it's certainly not calm. It can be really quite tiring in the early stages of settling the mind. And, you've, and moreover, you feel you're doing it terribly. And that doesn't help much either. But as you get more into the hang of it, through the le- with less distraction, less grasping, then the cascading waterfall keeps on flowing, and you're just less and less upset. What a tremendous skill to develop before venturing out into the rest of the world. So it follows then that one could be aware of all the kinds of thoughts and images developing on the background while he, she pays attention to the breath, and that is still a proper practice. Uh, not quite. These are not the same practice. So I would not suggest uh, that you blend the two in thinking, well, I'm doing pretty well mindfulness of breathing, but I'm doing pretty well settling the mind as well, because there's a sharp knife edge in terms of different, different practices. And so... When you're practicing mindfulness of breathing, overwhelmingly the central stage, the central focus of your attention, of mindfulness, over, I mean, exclusively, of mindfulness is, to the best of your ability, maintaining an ongoing, unbroken flow of mindfulness of the sensations of the breath. That's it. Nothing more and nothing less. Nothing visual, nothing auditory, nothing conceptual. No thank you. Single-pointed. It can be full body if you like, abdomen if you like, apertures of the nostrils, but that's it. And now, in this kind of, what's it called, cost-benefit analysis type of model, because if we don't apply introspection, if we don't sometimes quietly 
mildly interrupt that flow by orthogonally coming in with introspection and monitoring the flow of mindfulness, which does break it a little bit. But if we don't do that, then we run the danger of so never practicing introspection and say, you know, I'm just going to practice mindfulness. And then 10 seconds later, you're not practicing mindfulness and you don't notice. And you're off just on some caravan trip, you know, off for 10, 15, 20 seconds, a minute, two minutes, and not even knowing because nobody's guarding the house. There is no quality control. There is no monitoring the flow of mindfulness. So when you've forgotten, you haven't remembered that you've forgotten. You've just forgotten. And that can go on for a long time. I attended only one of Goenka's retreats back in 1974, but when he'd have these very brief one-on-one -on -one meetings with people, they'd come up to him and sit right in front of him. Uh, and bear in mind, these are a lot of them are complete beginners, and now they're meditating 11 hours a day from your first retreat. A lot of people, that was their first retreat with him. And, you know, I, I couldn't help sometimes overhearing the questions he would pose to them. And he would, an enormously benevolent man, incredibly kindly, and he would, he would lean over, and uh, this is while I'm really single-pointedly doing my own practice, by the way. <laughs> I wish. But he would, let, he would lean over and say, and, uh, how long did your mind wander? 10 minutes? 20 minutes? You know? <laughs> Wow, that's a long time. <laughs> no wonder you can sit for 11 hours because, you know, for 10 of it, you're gone, <laughs> right? And so introspection is to try to cut down on that time, the cost-benefit. So the focus is on mindfulness. And to the extent necessary, one notes the extent to which the mind is prone to excitation and tries to release it as quickly as possible afterwards. Now, so that's it. So you're not really... Making a, you're not doing anything remotely like 50-50. Okay, I'll follow my breath, but you know, half the time I'll be checking out mine, checking out what, you know, like cinema number one and cinema number two, buying one ticket, and I'll just go back and forth from cinema <laughs> and, you know, and do them both really badly. You know, so that's not it. You've chosen cinema one, and that's mindfulness of breathing. And to make sure that you can increase the quality and really progress along those stages, you do check up now and again, but not really to take an interest in the content of any of the thoughts. It's flat. Thoughts or no thoughts. Excitation, no excitation. It's more generic. Excitation, no excitation. Laxity, no laxity. Dullness, no, no dullness. Not what are you dull about, or what are the thoughts, memories, and so forth about. Not interested, so sorry. Not interested. I just want to know whether the, whether the flow is being interrupted by either excitation or laxity. So it's, we're giving them just as, as little as possible. When you get to stage eight out of nine, so in other words, very far along the path, then they don't arise anymore. Neither la even subtle laxity, neither subtle laxity nor subtle excitation arise. In which case, uh, you give introspection a gold watch and say, good, you can retire. And you don't use it anymore. For the rest of the trajectory on Shamadi, you don't use it anymore. It's not needed. Not needed. In which case, the cost-benefit is now finished. There is, there is a cost and there is no benefit to interrupting the flow of mindfulness. But that means for a long time before then, it will be useful. So when I... So, there's, so that's sufficient for the first one, I think, yeah? So what second one, when I... Oh, uh -huh. okay. When I pose a question in class about whether my experience of developing stories, images, etc. on the background means that the attention is being split. Your answer is yes. When I, when I posed, when I did that. 
about whether my experience of developing stories, etc., on the background are developing stories. Well, if you said I said yes, I presume I said yes. Yeah, because if you're if you're developing a story, of course, none of these practices entail developing a story. Settling the mind does entail attending to the story, but without developing it. Whether your experience of developing stories on the background, I don't understand the question really. I don't understand what you're referring to. You have the answer so far? Okay, why don't I read the rest? Okay, go ahead. Here's the microphone. Thank you. Uh, what I was saying is that in the first part, it, to me it was contradicting. Uh, I was drawing con contradictory conclusions from two seemingly the same okay. things. Yeah. Because um, I was going off by assuming that the cascading waterfall effect applies to mindfulness of breathing. Yeah, it doesn't. Okay. I mean, it's cascading waterfall on stage one. By stage two, that cascading waterfall should definitely be diminished. I see. Okay. Okay? Yeah. Okay. I'll go ahead and read, see if I can pull anything out of the rest. Yeah, there's no question that we are shifting tracks, shifting attention. If you're practicing mindfulness of breathing and then you note a thought, in that moment, have you disengaged your attention from the sensations of the breath? Yes, you have. But better to note the thought than not even note the thought at all, unless you're deep samadhi, in which case the thought doesn't even appear because you're totally focused. So to be totally focused, and this with clarity, not kind of some vague, nebulous awareness, but with single-pointed attention, if you're focused on the sensations of the breath and you're not aware of thoughts arising, that's just fine, right? If you are thinking you're practicing, whereas in fact you have unconsciously been simply carried away by thoughts, that's simply called distraction. If you're practicing mindfulness of breathing and while seemingly attending, having the sense of an ongoing flow of awareness of the sensations of the breath and simultaneously aware of background chatter, the Buddhist analysis of this is that your mind is, is quickly oscillating back and forth between the sensations of the breath and the tactile field and your awareness of the thoughts in the mental field is oscillating back and forth, back and forth so rapidly that you feel they're taking place simultaneously. And over a period of a, if we say, well, in a, in a period of a quarter of a second, can you attend to both the sensations of the breath and note thoughts? The answer is yes. If that's what you mean by simultaneous, okay, simultaneous. So course analysis, yeah, si simultaneously attending to the breath and thoughts. But subtle analysis means you've just, you've just stopped attending to the breath and now you've simply you've just stopped attending to the thought because you're going back and forth rapidly. Okay? And the whole thing is it gets more homogeneity just on the object. Go ahead. Um, well, maybe you could say a bit more because this is a big problem for me. It happens often that this, there's like a, this experience of kind of doing it, kind of being on the breath, but also something else happening mm -hmm. in the background. Sure. And um, so I, I, 
I'm having a hard time dealing with it because when I let me interrupt. when I stop to I, recognize I, it, I'd like to I'd like to interrupt because I think I'm, I may be able to jump ahead. And that is, there's a real the great value in learning the nine stages well before even on stage two. I mean, not in tremendous detail, but to get the big picture, right? And it's helpful even at the outset. And one of these, one reason for that is that we don't have false expectations, unrealistic, expe unrealistic expectations. So to know well the distinctions between coarse, medium, and subtle excitation, just for starters, and conceptually they're really easy to understand. Coarse excitation, you've completely, for one second, five seconds, a minute, whatever it may be, you have completely forgotten. In a very coarse, tangible, macro way, you have completely forgotten what you're doing. You're just sitting there looking like you're meditating, and you're not. Okay? So if somebody were paying you, they should just hit the clock right then. You are, you're, you're taking coffee break. You're getting no salary for this buster. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know? And so coarse, obvious, I don't know what I'm doing, but it's not meditating. That's coarse excitation. You've completely disengaged from and forgotten the meditative object. Okay? That's going to continue until you're on stage four. You're meditating for 15 minutes, half an hour, an hour. Until stage four, that's going to happen on occasion. So don't be upset when it happens. Stage four is pretty darn good samadhi. Stage three is pretty good. But even on stage three, you're going to have times when you've just forgotten it completely. For a second, five seconds, ten seconds, whatever it is. The, time, the, the, the times of going AWOL, absent without leave, get, of course, shorter. But up until stage four, you completely forget the object. Now, stage four, five, six, medium excitation. Medium excitation means, on a coarse level, you're primarily, on, on occasion, when it occurs, or you're primarily attending to the distracting thoughts and so forth. And secondarily, more peripherally, you're aware of, you know, let's say the breath. Let's just stick with that practice. So... It's kind of like, you know, yeah, I wonder whether they can get any more ice cream or whether that's the last batch they're going to give us because in the last retreat, there was less and less ice cream and then there just wasn't any more. <laughs> you know? And, and, oh, yes, in-breath, in-breath, out-breath. And carry, carry on. Oh, very, very good. Yeah. But now, if they do get... I wonder if we could move... Uh, 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 yeah, in-breath, yeah, yeah. Got it, got it, got it. In-breath, yeah. I bet an outbreath is about to come. I'm sure of it. And so, but I wonder if we couldn't move. I wonder if we could persuade him to get just one more bat. In breath, yeah, got it, got it. You know? And so we're primarily focusing on ice cream. And I never do this, but in case some of you do this, I wanted, to, I wanted to warn you off. You know, this is medium excitation where you're kind of yeah, in breath, out breath, got it. You know, don't bug me already. Hey, you know, but you're primarily four periods. You're primarily focusing on ice cream and kind of humoring the breath. And that's up on stage five and six. You know, that's really up there. You could be doing two-hour sessions. But on occasion, you're going to be doing that. Primarily focusing on the whatever is exciting the mind, distracting. And secondarily, holding on. You know? Holding on. And then you get up to stage seven. Up there, stage six, seven. And, and eight in principle. And... Now it's subtle excitation, where you really are primarily focused on, let's say, the acquired sign at this point. But there are a little bit of flies buzzing around your, your mental head, 
That is, you can hear the background noise. And you're really there. You're in the zone. But occasionally. Ice cream. <laughs> That's up at stage seven. You could be doing three or four hour sessions at that point. So when you see, oh, way up there, you still have this. Then you say, oh, okay. And I'm on stage two. Well, then no wonder. You know. Then, without false expectations, you don't beat yourself up for not being where you aren't. That's what those stages are good for, really, really good for. Not for setting goals, like how long will it take before I hit stage three and all that kind of business. That's counterproductive. But not having false expectations and then seeing the signs. Oh, in most of my sessions over the last week, over the last two weeks, in most of them, by and large, I saw that Primarily I was in the object, occasionally I would forget for brief periods, but I would quickly come back. And there were a couple of sessions, or one day especially, it was really bad and I was back to stage one and two. But then there was a, one day, it seemed like session after session, I seemed to be really on and I wasn't losing it at all for 45 minutes. And so I was getting a little, little dip into stage four. And I had some fallback to stage two and one, but overall it was kind of... then. Judging this pretty much month by month. Week by week is too short, day by day is ridiculous. But month by month, oh, okay, pretty much I think my home base is now stage three. And occasionally I'll slip back. I'll have some really good sessions and I'll slip back. And then I'll regain my ground. And then I'll have a bit, few more of sessions where I'm really venturing out into stage four. And, and so forth and so on. And that's how it moves. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. All righty. Good. We still have a few minutes. That was a good, very practical question. Comments, insights, breakthroughs, incredible lucid dreams? Any of the above? Complaints about the food? Can I have one more? You again? On, on this one, yeah. <laughs> I've heard you before. Did, did Jacob not have a question? Yeah, he does. He does? Give it to Jacob. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 no, no. Uh, I'm the boss here. You get, the, you get it. He can have another turn tomorrow. It's, it's related with the same... Uh, with, That's okay. Well, ...with mindfulness of breathing. Um, and uh, on the subject of relaxation, the, um, I've been having this experience more and more that... Uh, okay, I feel like... I'm as relaxed as I could be physically. Like um, I'm not tensing up my face or my mm -hmm. neck or muscles or anything. Um, and uh, particularly, like as you explained, on the exhale, releasing all right. tension and everything. Right. Um, and I, I kind of feel like it, uh, when I do that, I can also release kind of resistance to settling on the object. So, mm -hmm. in yes. terms of attention, also relaxing. Yeah. Is this mindful breathing settling the mind? Mindfulness of breathing. Okay. Yeah. Good. Um, and sometimes it starts feeling quite precise, like I can really release the, uh, all the excitation, well, I'll, you know, at, at least yeah. even for, for times like medium, and, and it's really quite silent. Um, but for a few breaths at a time, it's like that, or maybe five, six, seven breaths at a time. And then it, it starts feeling like it's so unfamiliar to be that relaxed, yeah. Yeah. that even though I'm physically relaxed, and relaxing with every breath. Yeah. It's so unfamiliar that I start feeling like almost like I'm out on a limb 
and yeah. I'm going to drop it, or like I'm going to, and it, mentally it starts feeling tiring over the course of minutes and minutes of, of mm -hmm. doing that, even though mm -hmm. physically I'm relaxed and mm -hmm. kind of sticking with the instructions. So yeah. um, could you? You're, you're trying too hard to relax. <laughs> 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 and that's really tiring. <laughs> Just do the practice. Okay. I mean, is it, is it good to do something else? Or, I mean, uh, I mean not uh, take a different approach, I mean? Or is yeah, there, don't is try so hard. Yeah. Even to relax, to yeah. not try so hard to relax? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> don't, don't try so hard to relax. Exactly that. You put it well. Don't try so hard to relax. You can't push it. You can't push it. It's kind of like saying, all right, Jacob, in five minutes, I want you asleep. <laughs> and I'm really serious. In five minutes, I want you unconscious. Now start now. Fortunately, that's not so difficult. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody knows try, trying to fall asleep is just one of those things that just doesn't work out too well. And trying to relax, trying to relax, of course, is oxymor oxymoronic, right? So just be content. Be content. We're in kind of in mid-stride now, just a wee bit over halfway through this eight retreat, eight-week retreat, and now is a time just to kind of get in stride and just start practicing patience. And bear in mind what I what I suggested at the very beginning, which I really very strongly mean. You'll notice that in our interviews, I can't remember the last time. Maybe maybe I've done it once or twice. Ask somebody, and where do you feel you are among the nine stages? I don't recall. I might have done it once or twice. I wouldn't say I've never done it, but not much, if, if at all, not much. In the three-month retreat, I would ask people that after a while. Because by the time they'd finished six weeks, and they know there's another six weeks coming, they're not kind of already wrapping up and thinking, you know, that they're going to be out of here. Um, and then people responded. And I wasn't pushing. They knew that. But in, a two, in an eight-week retreat, I don't want people to get hung up on that at all. I don't want them asking that question. And that's why I'm not asking that question either. The aspiration is, from my side, and I hope from everyone here, is not how far along the path of shamatha can I get in eight weeks. Because that's just, just inviting the syndrome of hope and fear. And then you'll be judging it day by day. Am I making it? Am I going to achieve my goal? Worse, much worse than a waste of time. But rather have, it have the aspiration, which I think is very realistic. By, by the time we all leave here, may I be familiar with all of these methods. It winds up being 20 when we check all the nuances of them. But primarily in terms of shamatha, basically the three methods, then I really know how to do each one of the three. I'm familiar with them. I know for each one of them when I'm doing it correctly. And I've got some idea of really not only just I'm doing it correctly, I'm not, but... I got the feel of them. And if I want to continue, I know how to do it. And if I want to go from here to a one-year one year retreat, why not? You know, why not? What more do I need to know in terms of sheer information transfer? What question didn't I ask that was really important? Now, if you go off from here and take a, do a six-month retreat or a one-year retreat or something like that, you know, very solitary, very focused, could further questions come up? Of course, why not? But then that's what the internet's for, you know, pop me a question. But overall, and I have, I have found this to be the case, including more than one person from the spring retreat, one just leaps to mind, she's now in a groove, 
she, she came in well prepared. She attended the eight week, knowing that when she left here, she wanted to go, to go into a one to two year shamatha retreat. She's in now. And um, she contacts me about once a month or so. No drama. She's just in her practice. She knows how to do it. She knows what she wants to do. She's got very balanced practice, excellent discipline, wonderful motivation, excellent ethics. She's just doing the practice. Okay. That makes me really happy. And the further she goes along the path, the less she'll, she'll need me. I'm happy to be of service. But she's just becoming more and more independent, uh, self-reliant, because she knows what she's doing. She really does. So that's where this practice leads. And so if you have that confidence, whether or not you're going to go into a one or two year retreat from here, maybe you're going back and have a baby, you know. But go back and have a baby with that confidence, I now have 20 modes of meditation that I feel really familiar with. I'm going to apply that to raising my child, to making a living, and letting my mind become Dharma. That's what I aspire for. Okay? Anybody else? If the microphone is completely silent, I will let Nicola have it back. But oh, he doesn't. He doesn't want it now. <laughs> In that case, I do have another question. Go, go ahead, Mike. Go ahead, Jason. Uh -huh. uh, it, it's about the four measurables. The four um, me oh, I like that. So uh, I, I don't want to be blurring these all together because I know they're the four discrete practices. Yeah, but at, at this point, actually, this is some. I'm going to interrupt again. Uh, at this point, blurring is not that big a deal. Blurring, settling the mind with mindfulness of eating, that's a big deal because they're different methods, right? But if we look at the Buddha's Metta Sutta, his primary discourse on loving kindness, he says, oh, wait a minute, blurring, blurring, <laughs> you know? I'm sure there's some compassion in there, I'm sure of it. And you're right. If you look at Buddha Gosa's presentation of the liturgy, the, the slogans and so forth, the aphorisms of, you know, may, 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 the first three are compassion. May I be free of ill will. May I be free of physical affliction. May I be free of mental affliction. May I be well and happy. Wait a minute, that's merging. That's merging. I think Alan Wallace would not approve. Well, that's merging, but you know, it's not a problem. And so with compassion as well, as you imagine people emerging from their suffering, finding relief, if you imagine them finding a little bit of happiness, it's not a bad thing. And in the practice we're doing here, especially we went into the Mahayana mode of may we all never be parted from genuine happiness of the causes. One can say, blurring, I think that's loving kindness. Sounds a lot like loving kindness to me. So this is not a big deal. And equanimity as well. Equanimity as well. Tomorrow I'll go back and make notes and make sure I don't even make a small mistake. But there's a very nice presentation from the teachings of Longchenba, I believe it is. I have it in my notes, of the cultivation of, in sequence, great compassion, great loving kindness, great empathetic joy, and great equanimity. So the Mahayana modes. And the sequence of them, the sequence of them is that sequence. And then there are four different times of, times of the day in which to practice each one. Uh, and I just, I just want to make sure I don't make any mistakes, so I'm going to review the notes to make sure I remember it correctly. But if you can imagine, there's just a, a magnificent crescendo building here. Number one, for the baseline, the, the boundless, I think the, the order is magnificent, and I wouldn't mess with it. Start with loving kindness. Start with loving kindness. 
and then compassion. The, the reasoning behind it, let alone the heart feeling, but the reasoning is so clear. Loving kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and then the grand finale, equanimity. And now you have the even base. And now moving from there to great compassion. The, the bodhisattva's great compassion. And think that makes a lot of sense. That really makes a lot of sense. But then don't get bogged down. Great loving kindness. Oh, good balance. And now great empathetic joy. But with this spin, why couldn't all sentient beings never be parted from genuine happiness that causes? May they never be parted. May I enable them never to be parted. May I be blessed so that I may be so enabled to do that. Consider within classic, like Tsongkhapa's presentation and so forth, of step-by-step bodhicitta meditation. Doesn't this sound an awful lot like the extraordinary resolve? That is, I take upon myself the responsibility of liberating all sentient beings from suffering and bringing each one to genuine happiness. Doesn't sound an awful lot like that? When it's, may I do it? May I do it? It sounds like, boy, if that's not the extraordinary resolve, it's very, very close. Right? And then we think, then what comes right after the extraordinary resolve is bodhicitta itself, right? And then we think, well, what is the great equanimity? May all sentient beings be free. Why couldn't all sentient beings be free of attachment and aversion to those who are near and far? Abide in equanimity. Why couldn't all sentient beings abide in equanimity, free of attachment to those who are near Aversion to those are far. Why couldn't they be free? May they be free. May I free them. Or may I facilitate and enable them to abide in such equanimity. May I be blessed that I may enable all to abide in such equanimity. One could really mistake that for bodhicitta. Because that equanimity could be the equanimity of non-abiding enlightenment without attachment to nirvana and without aversion to samsara. It's quite magnificent. So, blurring is not an issue. Not, it's not nearly a big deal among the four measurables, as it is in Shamatha. Okay? Sometimes I think just being happy that we encounter Dharma at all is quite enough. It's so good. So good. And I mean Dharma. I'm not pitching. I'm not, I, I hope it's clear to everybody. I'm not, this is not a sectarian pitch. Oh, Buddhism better than some other tradition. It's not better for everybody. Absolutely not. Buddhism is not the best path for everybody. Mahayana Buddhism is not the best path for everybody. I'm just talking about Dharma. <coughs> Isn't it wonderful to have incarnate Dharma? Very good. We have nothing to be sad about. Not when we have Dharma. If you have dharma, then everything else falls into the shadow. Whatever, short life, long life, good health, bad health, adversity, felicity. If you have dharma, then you have sufficient grounds to be happy. Genuine happiness. Dharma is sufficient. <laughs>